0: Welcome to Role-Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 141, The Fantasy Trip and It's a Crime. This week, we're diving into a game that's had not one, but two lives. And while neither one's been all that long, there is a long and very interesting history there. Also, I've added a bonus unannounced game to the show this week, and it comes from my request from last week's show for play-by-mail games that you wanted me to research and bring to the forefront. In fact, I'd already done a bit of research on this game, and since I realized I'd have the time this week, I decided to add it to the tour. So, let's get the tour bus cranked up and start with this week's first topic. The Fantasy Trip is a fantasy tabletop role playing game developed by the American game designer Steve Jackson and originally published by the company Metagaming Concepts starting in 1977. But as I mentioned in the open, we've got some history here we need to cover. Jackson, like a whole lot of other folks in 1974, was fascinated by Dungeons & Dragons when it was first released. However, he was one of those creative types that was turned off by the rules, which he saw as long and complex. He also didn't like the character creation process, which he felt relied too much on randomly determined attributes. So while he played and ran the game, he had his own rules, which we would now call house rules that he used as a part of the process. Stu Horvath commented on this in his book, Monsters, Aliens, and Holes in the Ground, which released in 2023, when he noted that Jackson's house rules became a way to, quote, reduce randomness in favor of giving the player some sort of leeway in creating the sort of character they want to play, end quote. By the time Jackson moved to metagaming concepts, he'd refined the rules he'd been using for his home game enough to separate them from D&D, and therefore he was able to design an entirely new game system built around them. This system was a point-by system for determining attributes, which, again, gave the players more freedom to create the kinds of characters they'd want to play. Speaking of metagaming concepts, they'd already begun work on their microgame line when Jackson arrived, and I think we've touched on this line before. But to refresh your memory, microgames were small and simple games packaged in either a Ziploc-type bag or a very thin plastic case. Jackson had the honors of the first official release in the line with his science fiction game Ogre, but microgame number three, published in 1977. Is what relates to today's tour because that was the first of Jackson's new role-playing game, The Fantasy Trip Melee. 1978 brought the next game in the line, micro game number six, The Fantasy Trip Wizard. Metagaming was impressed with the response to the first two games in the line and they did what any responsible game company would do. They immediately produced a micro quest line of small adventures that used the rules. Eight adventures in total came out between 1978 and 1981. Now, Melee and Wizard had dropped good combat and magic rules on the market and had been solid selling mini games, but Steve Jackson wanted more and who could blame him? I mean, if you had created a tabletop role-playing game, wouldn't you want to see it on the market in a more fully formed format? (laughs) Yeah, so would I. So he got to work. He revised both Melee and Wizard, adding more combat rules, more weapons, more magic items, and some actual rules for the GM. He also added a complete adventure that took advantage of all of these new rules he'd busted his ass putting together. He then submitted the entire work for publication as one piece, assuming Metagaming would release it as a single product, because, well, why wouldn't they? <laughs> Well, because Howard Thompson, who was the president of metagaming at the time, believed it was too complex. <laughs> That's why. Thompson decided to make changes to the game, and he did so without showing Jackson the final proofs. Then he had metagaming publish the fantasy trip as four separate books. Advanced Melee, Advanced Wizard, In the Labyrinth, which was the GM's guide, and the adventure, Tolan Carr's Lair. Needless to say, Thompson's meddling in Jackson's work without his knowledge or approval pissed Steve Jackson off, and it did so to the point that he left metagaming in 1980 and started his own company, and you know that company as Steve Jackson Games. Metagaming continued to publish material for the fantasy trip, Warrior Lords of Darok and Force Lords of Dehad came out in 1982 for The Land Beyond the Mountains, and that was a campaign Metagaming did as part of a partnership with Game Lords. Metagaming had also partnered up with Chaosium in 1981 to share some character information and assorted notes for Chaosium's Thieves World setting. The Space Gamer and Interplay, which were magazines published by Metagaming, both featured the fantasy trip materials, and those included designer notes, setting expansions, and alternate rules, which allowed Metagaming to test materials without having to publish a full release. By 1983, Metagaming found itself in a financial crunch and Howard Thompson was forced to close the doors. He was also forced to liquidate the majority of its assets. Now, at that time, Steve Jackson tried to get the rights to the fantasy trip, but the $250,000 Thompson wanted for it was too rich for his blood, and the game ultimately went out of print. So, Jackson instead started work on another role-playing game that was heavily influenced by his original creation. You might have heard of this game once or twice, GURPS. In 1988, Hobby Japan released a Japanese language version of the fantasy trip using the name Phantom Unicorn Quest. As is common in Japanese releases of American games, the release was a single volume and it combined the rules from Melee and Wizard along with the micro Quests, Death Test, Death Test 2, Grail Quest, Treasure of the Silver Dragon, and Treasure of Unicorn Gold. Oh, and you might wonder how Hobby Japan was able to do this. Well, you have to remember that even though the fantasy trip was out of print in the U.S., Howard Thompson still owned the rights. So even though he wasn't or wasn't able to print it in the U.S., he could still sell the rights for someone in another country to publish the game if he so chose. So that's how it happened. And insofar as why the name changed for the Japanese market, well, that happens all the time, and I really can't tell you why. Maybe somebody who knows can tell me, and I can update you in a future episode? Question <laughs> mark. So after all the success the fantasy trip had, it laid in purgatory for several decades. Until December 26th, 2017. That's when Steve Jackson took advantage of an interesting option in U.S. publication law. Let me see if I can give you the Cliff Notes version. So according to US Code 203, Article 17, if you're the original author of something, you have the right to reclaim the rights to your work after 35 years, period, underline, highlight, end of story. And that's exactly what Jackson did. And it got him the rights to the fantasy trip. Now, Jackson has admitted more than once over the years that the process wasn't cheap and that it took him well over a year to do it. But at the end of it all, he had his original creation back and he had it back at his company and it allowed him to bring his creation back to life. So in July of 2018, Steve Jackson Games cranked up a Kickstarter to reissue Melee, Wizard, and the Fantasy Trip Legacy Edition box set with the In the Labyrinth rules, among a ton of other included materials. Now, as you'd expect, this Kickstarter was a big success, bringing in more than $450,000, which was way over the goal. Interest in the revival of the game was so great, Steve Jackson Games released it for retail sale on April 17th, 2019. Since then, a number of other Kickstarters have been cranked up to release more supporting materials, such as Decks of Destiny and a new magazine to support the fantasy trip called Hexagram. It's also been reported that more support materials are in the pipeline. And Steve Jackson Games has announced they've got a licensing structure in place that will allow for other companies to work with them to produce materials for the fantasy trip, and Gaming Ballistic was the first company to sign on. They released five adventures for the game in 2019. If you're interested in picking up the most recent release of The Fantasy Trip, you might be able to find it at your local game shop. If not, check to see if they can order it. If they can't, check out the official website, thefantasytrip.game. See, I told you The Fantasy Trip had an interesting history. That's why I love doing games like this on the show. Now, let's do my other favorite thing. Let's take a look at what makes her tick. Well, let's take a bit of a look since I wasn't able to dig up a whole lot of stuff. I- I'm sorry, I spent the majority of my research time doing history stuff this go around. Okay, so we all understand that when creating a character for a role playing game, one of the very first things we do is get the attributes together. And in a D&D game, that comes from rolling the dice and assigning scores. It's been that way pretty much from the beginning. In fact, Pretty much every game that followed D&D in 1974 did it that way, with the idea being that you'd take the highest role and put it in the ability that would be the most important, and you'd put the lowest into the one you hoped you'd need the least. Most of us call that the dump stat. That's where the fantasy trip was different. Steve Jackson believed that the point-by system gave the player the advantage, since the point-by system gave the player 32 points to use to spread out between strength, dexterity, and intelligence. Now, if you sit there and work out the math obviously you can't have all 18s so you have to decide how you want the scores to work out and that means you have to decide what's important to you since in his game strength tied into health dexterity tied into hit chance intelligence tied into spell casting you get the idea so you really had to put some thought into it and like i said This was the first game to have the point-by system, and we still see the point-by system in use today. (laughs) Ironically enough, D&D has embraced the point-by system as one of its three options for character creation and has done so in the past three editions of the game, and one would imagine their upcoming edition is going to do so as well. Now, since Melee and Wizard were the two releases that kicked off the game, let's take a quick look at both of them. In its original form, Melee introduced a simple, fast-playing, man-to-man tactical combat board game that came with a small, blank hex map, a countersheet of men, monsters, and weapons, in case any got dropped in combat, and a 17-page rulebook. Each character in the game had a strength and dexterity attribute, and strength determined how much damage a character could take and the size of the weapons that could be used. Now, Obviously, heavier weapons would increase the amount of damage that one could drop on an enemy. Dexterity determines the hit chance. Armor can be worn, but while it does reduce the amount of damage taken, it also lowers dexterity. So, you can lower the damage taken at the cost of lowering the ability to hit your enemy. (laughs) Choices choices. Wizard was a 32 page rulebook that had pretty much all the combat system from Melee, but it added a magic system, which was, of course, a new addition. It also added intelligence, which was a new attribute that would determine magical ability. Intelligence was basically your IQ, and the higher it was, the more varied and powerful spells you could cast. That being said, casting spells would temporarily drain your strength. So that would limit the number of spells you could cast before you'd need to rest in order to regain strength. (laughs) Again, choices. And in my opinion, that's a rather elegant design in that Jackson forces players to make some hard choices. Sure, you can choose to be that frontline fighter. But if you want to wear armor, you have to realize you're going to have to give up some two-hit chance. Or... You cannot wear armor to be able to hit things easier, and you just have to know you're going to be taking a bit more damage than you might take otherwise. In other words, for every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction. Hmm, I think I've heard that somewhere before. One more thing I wanted to check out, and that's in the Labyrinth, since I've talked about it quite a bit in the History Breakdown. This was an 80-page release, and it was the release that turned Melee and Wizard into a fully-formed tabletop role-playing game and fantasy world. For the record, it was released at the same time as Advanced Melee and Advanced Wizard, and it was intended to be used along with them to form the full-game system, sort of like D&D's Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide. In other words, the microgames rules I mentioned in Melee and Wizard become fully-formed here, And the tabletop vision Steve Jackson saw initially came to life. Well, sort of. I mean, if Howard Thompson hadn't jacked with it, who knows what it might actually have been. During their stewardship, Metagaming released 21 products for the fantasy trip and had two more products in the pipeline when the line was shut down. Since regaining control of the line, Steve Jackson Games has released 47 products, has two more announced titles in the line, and has announced that there are several more on the way so the fantasy trip is in no danger of going away anytime soon all right you know me and my reviews and while i put Stu horvath's two cents worth in earlier i've got a review from ronald Pear i wanted to drop in here he reviewed the game for the september 1980 issue of the space gamer and said quote the fantasy trip is an excellent frp game system i'd have liked it to be better organized and a few dollars cheaper those who purchase it anyway will be very glad they did, end quote. Now, this is where I have to put that disclaimer in that the Space Gamer was a metagaming publication, so keep that in mind when you read the review, I'm, I'm just saying. But I will say this about the fantasy trip. For a game to go away for more than 30 years, come back and be more successful than it was in its original run, tells you just how much it was loved and appreciated by those who played it originally. It can also tell you how it fits into the modern role-playing world, since to be this successful, it has to be different from what's out there, or at least different enough to find its own niche. And from all the sites and support I saw online, I'd say the Fantasy Trip checks all those boxes. All right, next up, let's move from tabletop to play-by-mail and hit the second topic for today's show. It's a Crime is a play-by-mail game originally published by Adventures by Mail in September of 1985. It was designed, written, and programmed by Jack Everett, Robert Cook, and Michael Popolizo. When it was originally published, it was intended to be an introductory level play-by-mail game. There were only 12 possible orders a player could issue. There were another 5 or 6 gangs and 6 for mob bosses, and that made the game pretty simple from a technical standpoint. And we'll get into the whole gang thing in a minute, I promise. History first, kids. When it came to taking turns, you did need to do some simple math, (laughs) which would mean I'm out since we all know math's not my strong suit. Anyway. Simple math was required because players could issue orders that could allocate up to 100% of their gang and resources, but there was also a diplomacy factor, and that added a bit of complexity to the game. Now, these days, the game is run by our friends at the UK-based KJC Games, who we talked about last week and they offer a play-by-email option for those so inclined to use that option. The 21st century version of the game allows for more than 100 players per game, but it's otherwise rather similar to the original, and I'll get into the particulars of that now. It's a Crime was originally set in New York City in the 1990s, with players attempting to raise a gang leader to the level of godfather. The contemporary version of the game hasn't changed much as it's still set in New York, though it's now the 21st century, and the player is still going from small-time gang leader to godfather. Let's see if we can break this down a bit more since we do have the time to do it. During the initial run of the game, players played a gang leader leading what was called a group of misguided youths, which was basically one of 500 gangs located in New York City. Players could choose their own gang name, and there were a number of very colorful names chosen over the years, some of which were the Killer Penguins, Molly Maguires, and Death Leopards. (laughs) You you see what that was a play on, right? The writer John F. Janely wrote up a review in the July-August 1988 issue of Paper Mayhem, which was a magazine for play by mail gamers, but instead of a typical review, he covered it as a review of his own experience playing the game. Now, I did manage to get a copy of the review, and I'm going to use that to kind of describe how the gameplay works, since that's what he did for his review. I will be quoting some of it directly, so if you hear me call out some quotes, just know that that came from him. So he did note that success as a game leader would lead you to get to the next level, which the game called Bob Boss. And if you wanted to get more recruits to become more successful, you were going to need to take more blocks of turf to do so. Having a large gang size with a lot of arsenal on hand was going to be important to do that, as was making sure your gang had a mix of what he called, quote, pros, punks, and crewts, end quote. And I'm assuming that was shorthand for recruits. I'm guessing. Quality ratings were also a part of the game, with a higher quality rating being a good thing. Makes sense. Morale ratings were also important, and Jane Lee noted that he spent, quote, a lot of time monitoring his gang's morale ratings, end quote. He also noted that, quote, if they got too low, he risked desertions, end quote. Morale could be raised by throwing parties. Kind of hard to imagine in a gang with party hats, but I'm guessing probably that's not the kind of party he was throwing. I'm just guessing. I've seen a lot of mob movies over the years. But anyway. Raising money was needed for a variety of things, not the least of which was to pay all of those thugs on the payroll. He noted that could be done by selling drugs, firebombing targets, muggings, robberies, and such. Kind of makes sense. And, of course, the idea was to put together the right combinations of orders to raise your notoriety level as a gang leader in order to be chosen as mob boss. According to Jane Lee, to become a godfather, which was the ultimate goal, you had to gain, quote, approximately 20 loyal gangs, end quote. He also noted you had to do that pretty quickly. He noted that you had to, quote, use a combination of diplomacy and backstabbing to get that done, end quote. And to achieve victory, you had to hold on to the title of godfather for three turns. If you did that, you could play the next game for free. It's a nice reward, actually. Now I'm going to move away from Jane Lee to do our 21st century description, which really is pretty much the same as the original. Obviously, it's still computer moderated. The player still has control of a one block territory at the start of play. Things pretty much still work the same as the original version. The goal is still to become godfather. The major difference is once you become the godfather, you win. No need to hold it for three terms. It's a Crime was touted by the editors of The Games Machine in 1988 as the most popular play-by-mail game in the world, with more than 10,000 players taking part. In the February 1989 issue of The Games Machine, the editors made another bold claim. It's a Crime was the most successful game in Europe, and possibly globally. It was also announced that KJC Games was updating the game to a version called Gang by Gang, which was lessening the importance of the concept of a mob boss. Kind of makes sense. By 1990, Adventures by Mail reported that over 50,000 players had played It's a Crime, and the company claimed that it was the most played game in play by mail. Again, it's a pretty bold statement. In 1993, Adventures by Mail reported 60,000 people had played the game since its publication. It's a Crime won the Origins Award in 1986 for the Best New Play-by-Mail Game of 1986 and the Origins Award in 1989 for the Best Play-by-Mail Game of 1989. I mentioned John F. Hanley when I was going through the how-to of the game a moment ago. Let's go ahead and get his actual review. He said the game was, quote, a challenging and interesting game, but it may not be suited to everyone's taste, end quote. And he stated that even though it appeared to be one of the least expensive play-by-mail games at $1.50 return in 1988, the amount of phone coordination and diplomacy required meant, quote, the phone bills went through the ceiling, end quote. I would note that with the way the internet and cell phones work today, we can take those worries out of the equation. So if you're interested in trying an entry-level play-by-mail game, this might be the game to check out. If you're interested, head over to the KJC Games website. That's KJCGames, all one word, .com. And with that, we have come to the end of today's tour. Next week, I'm getting into a game that pretty much all of us old schoolers have played in one form or another. And I went back through the, the content list for the shows, and I can't believe I haven't covered it yet. Diplomacy. In the meantime, check out Bad GM's campaign build-along. This week, we build the first adventure of our new campaign, so check out the show to see what that's going to look like. Bad GM's campaign build-along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The theme for role-playing history is Beyond New Horizons by Gioli Fazeri and is available from pixabay.com. Role Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Look, by now you know the drill, so check out the info box or the website to see where you can follow us. Next week, it's diplomacy. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis in your Role Playing History.